The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles again to John chapter 14, and Lord willing, today we're going to finish John 14 and push pause before we move into that great vine and the branches passage in chapter 15. John chapter 14, and we'll be studying today verses 27 through 31. Let me read that just so it's fresh in our minds. John 14, 27 through 31. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You've heard, I, you've heard that I said, I will go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming And he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. I recently had that interesting experience of sitting down with my insurance agent and reviewing my life insurance policies. Uh, That is always a sobering exercise because no matter how, if you're an insurance agent, I pray for you because this is the tough thing for you guys. No matter how they try to frame it, they're basically saying, so let's talk about when you're gone. Let's orient things so that you're caring for those who you are going to leave behind. It once again forced me to consider my trust and my will. What am I going to leave to my loved ones? That's a question that solicits a fair amount of consideration as to what really is important. But that was not as sobering, frankly, as the conversation I had about a year and a half ago with three young men who may or may not live in my house, who I may or may not have been taking to school that morning. For some reason, one of my boys began a very intriguing conversation that day with this assertion. Dad, I get your 12-gauge Ruger over and under shotgun when you die, right? That was followed by, before I could even interject myself into the conversation, that was followed by, yeah, and I get your 12-gauge, huh, Dad? Well, I really wanted to weigh in on this, but, but they began talking fast and furious at that point. Well, I get Dad's dozier knives. Well, I get his tailor guitar. I get his fountain pens. Yeah, but I want that blue one. I get his books. I get his car. I want his watches. I get his Bible. I get his iPhone. <laughs> Finally, I jumped in. I said, wait, guys, I have not gone yet. And then the chilling words I heard from the back seat, yeah, but it won't be long. <laughs> <laughs> so what's important about what you have? What do you have that's so important you want to bequeath it, you want to will it, you want to assign it to someone when you're gone. 
Where do you want your possessions to go? Where do you want your affections to reside through those possessions? Or ask another way, what would be the most important thing for you to leave to your loved ones? What would be the most important thing for you to leave with your loved ones if you realized you were leaving to go to heaven? Well, here at the end of John 14, we find Jesus, in effect, verbalizing his last will and testament. Now, this is a man who is going to be very interesting in our observation of in giving his last will and testament because we find out over and over in the scripture, he doesn't have anything. He doesn't have a place to live. He has to find a place to to stay every night. We're not sure that he has much more but the clothes on his back. And even those will be gambled for at his crucifixion. What in the world does this traveling preacher, this miracle worker, have to give to the men he cares most about? What he leaves them is very interesting. What he does would never make any will or any trust of any man writing his out today. What does Jesus leave to his disciples? Very simply, he leaves them peace. These are the parting words of a blessing from the loving lips of our Lord to the troubled, fearful hearts of the disciples. It was, and is, by the way, uh, a common expression to greet someone, to wish someone, to hope someone peace, either when you saw them or when you were departing from them in this ancient Israel culture. Uh, 1 Samuel 1.17, Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. Even today, the most common way to leave someone's presence and part company in a Jewish culture is to say what? Shalom, peace. So it wouldn't surprise us with the Lord getting ready to say his official goodbye here to say shalom, to say peace, or irene as it is in the Greek. But that's not exactly what's going on here, though it's part. As the Lord wraps up this conversation in the upper room, in the southwestern part of the city, up on the high point of the the Temple Mount, he was going to leave them with a blessing. He was going to leave them with the blessing and the hope and the wish of peace. He does. And he does this, but this is very different than any other adieu you've ever seen. Why? This is no ordinary man extending peace to his friends. Now think about who is saying, peace be with you. Think about who's saying, my peace be with you. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Father of eternity and what? Prince of peace. Now just park your mind on that for a second. When the prince of peace extends peace, this is not just saying shalom, God be with you. This is not a hope. This is not a wish. This is a specific will and testament and inheritance. This is a gift as real and as tangible and as experienceable as anything I would live in my leave in my last will or testament. As the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, brought into this world with him through the incarnation 
an extraordinary peace that's different from any peace anyone has ever experienced or given or offered or hoped or wished or willed in this world. So we're going to drill down into this peace. And this, I think, should, uh, should resonate with all of our hearts that have ever been fearful, ever been troubled, ever been anxious. This is part of the really good news of the good news of the gospel. As we study these verses together, I want to find with you three characteristics of the prince's peace. Three characteristics of the prince's peace. The prince of peace's peace. The first is in verse 21, a supernaturally contrasted peace. This is important. A supernaturally contrasted peace. Verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. Now, that would have been normal. That would have been ordinary. That's the shalom. That's the irene in the Greek and the Hebrew. That's just a way to extend peace. That would have been a very interesting and easy, very uh, normal rather, not even interesting, very easy way just to say farewell, adieu. But then he goes on. (laughs) My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This night has not gone as the disciples have planned. We've studied this over and over, and it's once again important for us to realize what happened in that upper room, what happened coming up to that upper room, what was going on in the minds and lives and expectations of these disciples, and how radically different this night was than what they had planned back earlier in the week when they laid palm branches down and said, here's our Messiah, here's our King, we bow and worship to him. They were very happy to be walking behind Jesus during that parade. We're part of this. We're with him. He's the president. We're vice presidents. We're, we're in the club. We're on the team. We're going to be part of the rulers and the reigners. So they come to the, the point where they're going to have the, the Passover meal. It's Thursday night. They're celebrating together. They realize that... Uh, Tomorrow is a big day because Jesus will no doubt go into the Temple Mount and all the arguments and conspiracies and uh, threats against him, he was going to waylay and he was going to be on top, on the temple, ruling and reigning as the king, as the Messiah, kingdom begins now. So because of that, they wanted to make sure that they had the order and the pecking order all contrived and settled. So we find out from Mark and from Luke and from Matthew that they had been arguing up to this meal and actually during this last supper, during this last meal, they've been arguing about who's the greatest. Who's going to sit where when Jesus sits on the throne? Well, I'm going to sit on his right. I'm going to sit on his left. We're going to send our mom to make sure that we can sit on his right and left. Their arrogance, their worldly concern, Their selfishness was on high pitch. Jesus then slowly gets up, takes his outer garment off, gets a long towel, and washes their feet. Because none of them had been small enough to do it. Then he announces during dinner, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to turn me in. One of you is going to make sure that the chief priests 
Get a hold of me and order my execution at the hands of the Romans. Not only that, he informed them, I'm going to be leaving and I'm going to be gone. I'm going to send someone in my place who you don't know yet, but he will come and he's going to send the Holy Spirit to guide them, to comfort them. And now we come back to the problem of the disciples' hearts. This is exactly where we began this conversation. Look back at chapter 14, verse 1. What does Jesus say? Do not let your heart be troubled. You don't tell someone for their heart not to be troubled unless their heart is what? Troubled. They were were pretty disturbed here. And now he comes to the end and says the very same thing in verse 27. Don't be troubled. And then he adds this, or fearful. Now we've added to the troubled heart the, the emotion, the response of fear. These men were fearful. I mean, it's pretty easy. Think about what they, what they had going for them. We're going to follow this man named Jesus who's going to put himself on the throne. We're going to sit beside him. We're going to rule and reign with him. And oh yeah, he can feed people. Pretty good. Nation will never go hungry. He can heal people. Pretty good. Nation will never be sick. And if anyone dies, he had witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus not long before this. I mean, I want to be on this guy's team, don't you? Free food, eternal life, health. And then he says, "Um, guys, kingdom, not tomorrow. It's coming, but it's not tomorrow. In fact, what's coming tomorrow is I'm going to go. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. And you're going to be struck and scattered and running for your life according to the prophecy of Zechariah. Shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Not only that, the the one who's bravest among you, before the, 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 the sun rises tomorrow, before we hear the rooster crow, before that happens, your bravest is going to deny me and say he never knew me three times. It would make sense that they were troubled and they were fearful. That's why they kept saying, Lord, where are you going? How do we get there? So Jesus gives them the gift of peace, his final inheritance. But look closely at the language. First, he promises that he will be leaving them peace, which was expected. As I said before, this was that common expression when leaving someone's company. But there's a most important explanation that the Lord gives right following this this wish, this granting of peace. He says, and don't miss this if you're an underliner or a highlighter or an asterisker or a starter in your Bible. Circle this word. My, my peace I give to you. This is different than any other peace that's ever been experienced on the planet. It's a contrasted peace. In fact, Jesus immediately contrasts this peace with the peace of the world. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. This peace is going to be different than shalom. This is going to be different than I hope it goes well for you. This is real. This is guaranteed. This is to be experienced. This isn't a wish. This is a blessing. What kind of peace can the world give? This is different than the world gives peace. I mean, what kind of peace can we really offer someone when we say shalom or peace be with you? Well, I think we can probably offer them relational peace, can't we? We can certainly offer them the fact that there's going to be peace between us, and that's a good thing. It's honorable. 
We are to make sure that we're bearing one another's burdens and making things right with each other and not uh, squabbling and fighting. We could also offer financial or maybe even physical peace. We could solve someone's debt problem. We could certainly give them blessings materialistically. But mostly, the peace that we can give someone is entirely limited to the external. We can't really give them something inside their heart. So Jesus says, I'm going to leave you my peace. This is very different. This is a peace that's personal, and it's the personal possession of Christ. Notice that it's his peace that he's going to give them. Now, this is remarkable when you put it in context. How, what kind of peace does Jesus have? Well, let me ask you this. What kind of man can say, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. I'm going to be beaten tonight. I'm going to be dead by tomorrow afternoon. But yet tonight, I'm going to give you my attention and focus on you and give you my blessing and concern myself with your love for one another and make sure you're ready to live life with me without me, that your faith is fed. My concern tonight is not about my, my death tomorrow. Forget that. My concern tonight is about you. Would you want that kind of peace? I mean, when the disciples will look back years later and see this in context, when John would write this and pen this, and they would realize Jesus was saying, my peace that I'm experiencing in my greatest trial as I'm going basically to the death chamber, I'm going to give you that. Now, footnote, why would they need that? Well they were going to face some of the same things. Look over at John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. What makes this promise interesting is the coming years that these men would experience would be anything but peaceful. They would be persecuted, tried, convicted, beaten, left for dead, exiled to islands, giving up their life for Christ. So if you put those elements together in John 16, 33, we find out that Christ's peace is based on three things, his word, his person, and his work. These things I've spoken to you, there's his word, so that in me, that's his person, you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. There's his work. Doesn't it, I mean, is there anything new in theology, really? His word, his person, his work. Back in chapter 14, verse 1, look again at what it says. He, uh, he's trying to comfort them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then where does he go? Believe in God. Believe also in me. The sustaining way to accomplish and access God's peace through Christ is through faith. It's believing what he said. Believing what he's spoken. Taking it as truth. Applying it in our lives. Now let's dig a little deeper on this peace. It's a passage you all are familiar with. Turn over for a moment to Philippians chapter 4. Because this is all sewn in to Paul's admonition for us to not be anxious. And the admonition not to be anxious has to be tied into the Lord's gift that he's bequeathing here in John 14 of peace. Philippians chapter 4. Again, you want to highlight, star, asterisk, circle a word? Here it is, the first word in verse 4, rejoice. Rejoice where? Rejoice in the Lord. 
If that's not clear enough, again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Just read this as if you've never read it before. Think about this. Be anxious for what? For nothing. Do you see the comprehensive nature of that? I mean, we kind of give ourselves permission to be anxious for our kids because we love them. Anxious about our family, we love them. Anxious about our, jo- anxious about our job because we're gonna, we need pl- uh, to be providers. Anxious about, anxious about, anxious about. And we footnote that by saying we, we're okay to be anxious about those things. This is comprehensive. Be anxious for nothing. But instead of that, in everything by prayer and request, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to your neighbor. No, to your Christian friend. No, to your discipleship group. No, to the prayer chain. No, to, what does it say? Be known to God. Verse 7, here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts. What does that mean? Your hearts that are anxious will guard your heart that has troubled, fearful, anxious thoughts. Will guard your hearts and your mind, your thinking. Where? How? In Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things which that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Look at this. And the God of peace will be with you. What does that have to do with what Jesus is saying here? It has everything. In the, same, in the same way that the disciples were troubled, were fearful, were anxious, were depressed, were despairing, had no hope, in that context, which I dare say is probably greater than anything you and I have experienced, in that context, God, through Christ, says, I will leave you my peace. And here, Paul picks up the same concept and says, that same peace is offered, given, experienced, accessed through prayer. You know, I've been beat up by this passage. I've got to confess, all week I've been thinking of how easy it is for me to be in trouble, have anxiety, be struck or troubled, and, and I, I, I automatically pick up my phone. I, I, who can I call? I have a list of people I call. I can't wait to get home and talk to Kim about it. I, I can't wait to, to get the office and talk to Bob or Aaron about things that are troubling. Rather than stopping everything by prayer and supplication, We're supposed to talk to each other. We know that. That's what God's given the body for. But that's after we come to him first. Why is it that we don't immediately knee-jerk our soul to come to Christ, to come to God, to come in prayer? Can I give you the the raw truth about that? Because we don't believe it works. We don't believe it'll make a difference. That's why back in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Believe in God Also believe in me. Faith drives us to seek and access and experience the peace of the Savior. Said another way, did you hear how many times in this passage the mind and thinking comes up? Let your mind dwell on these things. Obtaining the peace of God is a rational pursuit, not an emotional and not an experiential pursuit. It's based on contemplating gospel 
truth. It's based on thinking about eternity, not just about what's causing us anxiety. And real things cause us anxiety, but Christ in the gospel trumps and triumphs everything that brings us immediate anxiety. And here's the deal. Most of what we worry about doesn't even come true anyway. I mean, if heaven is our target, if we're going to heaven, really, really we're going to worry about being late somewhere? Unless that's late to meeting with me, but that's another for another time. <laughs> Contemplating the gospel brings us the peace that Christ promises. Thinking about the gospel. It's anchored in the hope of eternity that transcends any and every trouble in this world. But let me say it another way, okay? Christ's peace is different than the world contrasted because the world's peace is only the absence of turmoil. You understand that? When when the world gives peace, it's the absence of turmoil. It's the absence of anxiety. It's the absence of trouble. Christ doesn't give the absence only. He gives the joy instead. Rejoice. Have joy. This goes back to what we've been talking about over and over. Look for a moment. I, I hate to have you keep flipping, but these are important connections to make. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, how important is this concept of peace that God gave us through Christ? How important is it? Colossians 3, 15 says... Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Rule in your heart means it's number one, on top, it's the king, on the throne, to which you indeed were called into one body and be thankful. Christ's peace should be the ruling evidence of grace in our lives. Christ's peace should rule our thinking and rule our emotions and control our anxieties and put perspective right in the forefront when the world and the devil and our flesh wants to put perspective in the back of our mind. Look, I've said this over and over. Let me say it again. We need to go through something very simple when anxiety comes. Three, three simple questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Or what do I believe? What do I feel? I feel terrible about this. This is a mess. I have anxiety. I'm terrified. I'm fearful. I'm troubled, just the same as the the disciples were. What do I feel? That's the first thing. Secondly, what do I think? Well, I I think this might be bad. I think this could be worse than I thought. I think I could lose this. I think I could experience that. Pain is in my future. Relationships could be lost. I think this is bad. But you have to get to that third question. What do I know? What do I believe? Working through that progression, though, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Has to force us to go back through the equation. What do I know? Gospel contemplation then begins to control how I think. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's your minds. Our thinking is controlled by gospel perspective. What do I think? Controls, what, do I, uh, what I believe controls what I think. And then that ultimately will control but not necessarily change what I feel. Listen, our feelings are, are like a, a reflex in our soul. They, they, it's just like backing up from a fire when we put our hand in it. They're, feelings are good as, as responders. They're not good as guides. You think Jesus felt good about being stretched out on a tree and nailed there? 
You think the disciples felt good as they were standing before kings and princes and thrones and, and said, deny the gospel or we'll have your life? You think Paul felt good when he laid his head on that block in Rome and it was severed from his body? I don't think their feelings were rejoicing and tap dancing. And that's because joy involves the feelings, but it's way more than the feelings. Joy is a settled confidence in theological truth. That's why we come to number two. It's a supernaturally contrasted piece. It's different than the world. Number two, these will go quicker. It's a theologically informed piece. A theologically informed piece. Verse 28 says, You heard that I said... I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. There's that joy again. Because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Jesus now returns to the theme that sparked the disciples' gloom in the first place. He's leaving, and yet he's going to be with them in spirit. And we've had a, if you haven't been here, we've had a glorious time looking in these previous verses at, at the, at the, um, the way the Lord intersects all the members of the Trinity, and we try to splice and dice them, and he doesn't. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. The Father and I will come and make our abode with you. So which member of the Trinity permanently resides with you? And the answer is yes, all the above. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to come and return. Much is happening in this passage. The disciples are confronted with their, with their selfishness, first of all, their misunderstanding, their faithlessness, their, their theological shallowness. The Lord's argument really goes something like this. Men, if you love me, then you would want what is best for me. And what is best for me is that I return to the Father for my enjoyment and for your good. And the glory that I had before coming into the world, I will enjoy again and... He's going to pray in chapter 17, and in a strange way, someday you will share in that glory. I think Jesus was hoping from the disciples for the kind of reaction that many of us have and have seen at the funeral of a believer. Tears, yes. Sorrow, yes. Warranted, yes. Even Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But... Also, it's different. There's a hope. There's a hope of joy. There's, there's a hope to see our loved ones again. There's, a, there's a, a joy that their faith is now sight. And heaven becomes a sliver more real to us when those we love are there. Verse 29 is important. Jesus wants the disciples not to be surprised by the events that are going to take place. Look at his care. Guys, let me tell you, I know what the future, here's what's going to happen. I want you to know now and know that I tell you now so that when it happens, you'll remember that I was in control. He wants those events, his suffering and his death, to actually serve as an apologetic, an affirmation about what they believe about their Lord and their Savior. You know, it's remarkable to me, again, how much Jesus was looking forward to going home, back to heaven, with his father. And what do we do? All of us do this. We, we love this world. We love this life. We want to cling to it with dug-in fingernails as tightly as possible. When the truth is, on that day, when our faith becomes sight, 
will look at those fingernails and say, what were you holding on to? Really? Look back at the text again. You heard that I said, I go away, I will come to you if you loved me. And the point of that is you didn't love me like you should have. You were selfish. You wanted me to stay here with you. You would have greatly rejoiced because I go to the Father. You would have been happy for me that I get to go to heaven. For the Father is greater than I. Now, this is tied back into the He and the Father coming to make their abode, the Father sending the Spirit. Don't you understand my advocacy with you, my friendship with you, the greatness of the Father? Don't you want me by the Father's throne for you? Isn't that what Romans 8 says? The Son sits and gives intercession to the Father on our behalf. You want a mind-numbing thought? Jesus is praying for you. Now, you get a sense of his desire to go back. If you look over in chapter 17 when he prays, by the way, in in verse 5, he says, uh, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I can't wait till we get there to study that. Who prays like that? Who, Who says... Restore the glory that I have with you before we, we made the world. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting and someone said that? If so, there are institutions for people like that. Third, it's a supernaturally contrasted piece. It's not like the world. It's a theologically informed piece. Jesus is in control of what's happening. The theology of the gospel is going to take place, and our peace rests in that. But third, it's a faith-sustaining peace. That peace will sustain us. Verse 30, I will, not, I will not speak much more with you. Now, this is just, the Greek language here is, is of longing. I, I won't be able to linger long with you. You almost see him wrapping this conversation up and not really wanting it to end. I, I, this is This won't last very much longer. Now, in the back of his mind, he's on a divine timetable because he knows he needs to go down the Kidron Valley, get in the the garden, and be there for Judas. But he wants to make sure he gets there early enough to pray before it happens. I will not speak with you much more, for the ruler of this world is coming. And the Greek is so sarcastic. It's wonderfully sarcastic here. Let me basically the translation is he ain't got anything on me. He's got nothing on me. He has nothing to accuse me of. Nothing. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Not long from now, the chief priests and the soldiers are going to find Jesus down in the valley in the garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. Listen to his response to them. When they finally come and they arrest him, Luke tells us that Jesus rises, goes to them and says, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. He grants that Satan is actually working 
in the lives and in the minds of these men. Look back at chapter 13, verse 27. After the morsel, after giving Judas the morsel, it says, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. He says, the enemy is coming. The ruler of the world is going to come. And even though he comes, he has nothing in me, which is another way of saying he has nothing to accuse me of, not anything to hold over me. He can't overthrow me. He can't overpower me. He cannot condemn me. He cannot even take my life on the cross. Jesus said, I give up my life. In other words, there's no weakness in Christ, and he submits to suffering and death. That's important. Jesus Jesus was not a victim on the cross. More than that, he was put on the cross, according to the book of Acts, by the predetermined plan of his father. Not only that, Isaiah 53 says, it pleased the father to what? To crush his son. This is not accidental, and he wants the disciples to know, this is according to plan, guys. The ruler of the world is going to look like he wins tomorrow. Wait till Sunday. Now, most of us think of the cross from this view, from ourselves. We think of Isaac Watts' word, alas, and did my Savior bleed? Did my sovereign die? Would, I, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We need to translate it like, like he wrote it. Such a worm as I, not such a sinner. Make it hard. Such a worm as I, that's the way Watts wrote it. Then he says, was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. We love that. We should look at the cross in its reference to our sin and sanctifying and saving us. Yet, Jesus chose to die. This is what's in this passage. Not just to save us. Jesus chose to die to obey his Father. This thought should not minimize our understanding of Christ's love for us. Instead, it should elevate our minds to the amazement of his love for the Father that was so intimate and so intense that he was willing to do what's about to happen in the coming hours. Don't forget that Christ and the Father have a relationship. I'm glad the cross is about us, but it's not all about us. This was the bloody covenant made between the Father and the Son. This was an inner Trinitarian covenant made before this world began. What does Revelation say? The Lamb of God was slain when? Before the world began. This was the plan all along. Look what happens at the end of the verse. This is... This has caused so much heartburn from so, for so many commentators. It's really kind of sad because it's, we don't know exactly what's happening here. We can just conjecture. Jesus says at the end of verse 31, Get up, let us go from here. Probably leaving the upper room, probably beginning to wind their way down through the, 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 the streets, the winding streets of Jerusalem, on the way down to the... Um, the eastern slope of the Temple Mount, which would have been laden with vineyards, and the bottom of the Kidron Valley where there would have been a road. 
you would cross over and then go up onto the, the Mount of Olives where there were groves of olive trees. Now, we know this for sure. They stopped somewhere at the bottom, for sure. Look over at chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words right after this, this, uh, this high priestly prayer, he went forth with his disciples and then went over across the ravine of the Kidron, the Kidron Valley where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So everything that happens up to verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1 is happening on the, the, the western side of the Kidron Valley. Why is this important? Ultimately, it's not critical. Jesus could have said, okay, let's stand and get up and go from here and, and did like you and I when we take, walk someone out to the car and you have another hour conversation there. That could have happened. Some conjecture that that did. My suspicion is that they, were, they left the room and he has the rest of this conversation walking through the streets and especially when he gets down into the vineyards on the eastern slope of the Temple Mount. Why? Because in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes, notice the word heaven there is not even capitalized, to heaven. It just means to the sky, which indicates that he would have looked up into the stars, up into heaven. So he's outside by that point. So chapters 15, 16, and 17 are a part of the same conversation he begins in the upper room, but finished, I think, as they walked toward the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had his divine appointment with Judas. If you read a commentator who says, no, this is still in the upper room, okay. It's the same conversation, but he does say, get up, it's time to go. A little footnote, though. You know what the last, we do know this, you know what the last thing they did in the upper room was? You know what they did, Aaron? They sang. In Mark chapter 14, verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's a wonderful theology there, it, especially in this context of peace. If this was the last thing Jesus said and they sung a hymn as we lined the order up between the four Gospels, doesn't it make sense that Jesus would cement their thinking and theology with a song? The Lord knew what we know about music. It can be a powerful balm for a troubled soul when theology is set to melody. Amen? I mean, aren't there songs you sing and things change when you're singing them? The key here is that this peace will continue without the physical presence of Jesus. I'm leaving you my peace and I'm going away. But you still have access to my peace. Very simply though, you will never Experience the peace of Christ until you have peace with God. Can I just beg you, do you know the Prince of Peace? Do you know him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Are you possibly one of those who are going to find themselves all the way to the judgment in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7? It says, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Have you experienced his peace? That is, here it is, beyond understanding. Because your theological anchor is in the gospel. And if you, if you haven't, in a few minutes we're going to sing. And after that, our prayer room is going to be open to my left. There will be men and women, a man, a man and a woman, and some people who'd love to 
serve you and help you and talk to you about what's going on in your heart, your soul. If you're troubled, if you're fearful, you can understand the gospel. You can talk to us about our church. We'd love to pray with you or serve you in any way. But it is appropriate since the last thing they did before they left the upper room was to sing. We can't leave today without singing. So Aaron, why don't you come? Let me close this in prayer. And we'll do what the disciples did. Put theology to melody. Father, your, your peace that you left through your son to us is, is something we long for, is something we have experienced as believers and still something that feels sometimes beyond our grasp. So turn our hearts toward gospel. Turn our hearts toward gospel contemplation. Make us to think based on what we feel. No, Lord, make us think based on what we know and then cause us to be anxious no more. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.